What's happening, ladies and gentlemen? This is Big Willie with the UFO Garage Podcast, where we're all about UFOs, aliens, and all things weird. I also run a podcast, Band of Bearded Brothers, with my brother Micah, B-O-B-B for short, and you are listening to Wayne and Michelle with the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. So take a seat and buckle up as they educate us on all things woo. Welcome to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. Coming to you from the glacial dumping grounds known as the Michigan Basin. I'm Michelle. And I'm Wayne. And we are a Michigan-based husband and wife educator and podcasting duo that after having a UFO sighting in March of 2018, have started to examine UFOs and other paranormal topics within Michigan and beyond. Topics include UFOs, the paranormal, conspiracy theories, ghosts, alternative history and archaeology, cryptids, and all things strange and paranormal. So sit back, grab a drink, and come along with us on this journey down the paranormal rabbit hole. Hey everyone, what's going on? We are back. Hello everyone in listener land. All right, it is episode 19, and man, I am excited for this one. What are we calling this one? Oh, this one we're calling Hollywood Exposed, a look into the occult and symbology with special guest Robert W. Sullivan IV. Oh, this is going to be awesome. I can't wait to get him on the line. This conversation's going to be sick, completely sick. Now, no clowning around on this one. Oh, boy. You'll see what she's talking about here in just a few moments. But I just want to give a special shout out and thanks to everybody in the Facebook group and everybody who's downloading the podcast. You guys are helping us continue to grow. It's amazing. You guys are all legends. We can't thank you enough. Also, a very special shout out to our man, Dave Scott, over at Spaced Out Radio. We were on his show last night. Until about 3 a.m. So we're a little Long tired. <laughs> yes. We're a little tired for uh, recording this one, but the show must go on. Speaking of the show going on, we know that some of the stories out there definitely help this show. So if you have a story you would like to tell, we would like to talk to you. You can reach out to us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. Send us a brief summary of your experience and we'll contact you to discuss things further and try to get you or your story on the podcast. And before we go into the deep dive of the show today, I just want to give a big thank you to Big Willie from UFO Garage and the Band of Bearded Brothers podcast, Christina Gomez of Shifting the Paradigm, Richard Sirrett of The Conspiracy Show, and last but never least, Burton and Aaron from the Lost in the Dark podcast for recording intro spots for us that we are using to open the podcast with. We can't thank all of you enough for vesting some time into helping us out with our podcast and reaching out to our listeners. So again, thank you to everyone who has helped out with those intros. Yeah, this is just one great, incredible community full of kind and professional podcasters. And again, as Michelle said, we just cannot thank you enough for doing that for us. All right, Michelle, I think it's that time. 
Let's go ahead and jump on over to the news because there is some freaky stuff going on. Absolutely. So what is in the news? Through Military.com and also aired on Fox 35 out of Orlando, um, we have a spike in UFO sightings across the nation. So check this out. There has been a spike in UFO sightings across the nation. With the recent release of a U.S. intelligence UFO report, are there just more people looking up in the sky or is it something else? 2020 produced 7,200 UFOs, an increase of over 1,000 from 2019. The U.S. government and military confirmed investigations and sightings of UFOs, bringing this phenomenon back into the mainstream media. Earlier this year, the DOD's inspector general launched an investigation into how the unidentified aerial phenomena were being monitored by the military. Well, this video shows a Florida resident recently caught two orbs on his home security camera. The video shows lights moving rapidly across the frame. Further examination of the video to see if there was a logical explanation such as drones, satellites, or birds was inconclusive. Without a definitive answer, it does raise the question, are we alone? Well, I'm going to put the link to this in our show notes. And people, you've got to go and check out the link to this and the video that is put up by Fox 35 in Orlando, Florida. And watch the two-minute news clip about this so you can see the video of these two orbs. You're going to find yourself rewinding the video over and over to watch this. Yes, the way that they move through the air and jump around and then the trail that they're leaving behind them is is circular it's something very bizarre i've never seen i was thinking maybe it was insects or something like that but it's you know is it the paranormal is it you know right. they, it, they've done their checks yeah they it, can't explain it it's it's really really interesting and kind of freaky it, it really is crazy to watch yeah so Check the show notes, click on that link, and go to military.com, and that'll take you to this article, Spike in UFO Sightings Across the Nation. And we have one more news article that we want to cover with you. Yes, coming from ABC News, man who went to space with Shatner dies in plane crash. Yeah, this is kind of a sad story. Yeah, it is. Um, State police say a man who traveled to space with William Shatner last month was killed along along with another person when a small plane crashed in northern New Jersey. Hampton Township, New Jersey, a man who traveled to space with William Shatner last month was killed along with another person when the small plane they were in crashed in a wooded area of northern New Jersey, according to state police. The one-time space tourist Glenn M. DeVries, 49, of New York City, and Thomas P. Fisher, 54, of Hopakong were aboard the single-engine Cessna 172 that went down on Thursday. Yeah, sincere condolences to those families. How horrible. Yes, our condolences for that pilot and passenger of that airplane. DeVry was an instrument-rated private pilot, and Fisher owned a flight school. Authorities have not said who was piloting the small plane. 
The plane had left Essex County Airport in Caldwell on the edge of the New York City area and was headed to Sussex Airport in rural northwestern New Jersey when the Federal Aviation Administration alerted public safety agencies to look for the missing plane around 3 p.m. Emergency crews found the wreckage in Hampton Township around 4 p.m., the FAA said. DeVries, co-founder of a tech company, took a 10-minute flight to the edge of space October 13th aboard Blue Origin's new Shepard spacecraft with Shatner and two others. It's going to take me a while to be able to describe it. It was incredible, DeVries said as he got his Blue Origin astronaut wings pinned onto his blue flight suit by Blue Origin founder Jeff Bezos. Isn't that also the Amazon founder? I believe so. Yeah. We are devastated to hear of the sudden passing of Glenn DeVries, Blue Origin tweeted Friday. He brought so much life and energy to the entire Blue Origin team and to his fellow crewmates. His passion for aviation, his charitable work, and his dedication to his craft will long be revered and admired. DeVry co-founded Metadata Solutions, a software company specializing in clinical research, and was the vice chair of life sciences and healthcare at DeSalt Systems, which acquired Metadata in 2019. He had taken part in an auction for a seat on the first flight and bought a seat on the second trip. DeVry also served on the board of Carnegie Mellon University. Fisher owned the flight school, Fisher Aviation, and was its chief instructor, according to the company's website. The National Transportation Safety Board is investigating. All right, let's change the atmosphere here a little bit and go into some shout-outs. Let's go ahead and start with UFO Garage. UFO Garage is a podcast about UFOs, aliens, and all things weird. The UFO Garage podcast is a fun, laid-back approach to the UFO UAP alien phenomenon. We love chatting with interesting people, hearing strange stories, and having a beer or two. Hosted by Joe and Ben, they are dudes, you're a dude, he's a dude, she's a dude, we're all dudes, yeah. So check them out. Links will be in the show notes. Next, we've got the Lost in the Dark podcast, hosted by Burton and Aaron. This is a pretty cool podcast that bills itself as an attempt to capture incredible conversations between best friends as we explore all of our passions, but especially music and the world of heavy metal. So if you're into paranormal investigations and loud heavy metal music, give them a listen. Strong language, but it's heavy metal and the paranormal. What else would you expect? Next, we have Brian Forrester, host of Hidden Inca Tours. Hidden Inca Tours works with leading experts, geologists, engineers, and the holders of oral traditions to investigate megalithic sites without bias. Participation in one of their tours feels like joining an informal research expedition with knowledgeable friends. If you are interested in seeing the current tour schedule and maybe joining a tour yourself, Get that backpack ready and simply go to www.hiddenincatours.com and click on tours for more information. And finally, we go across the pond to the UK and give a shout out to Phenomena Magazine, the world's most recognized e-zine of its kind. The magazine investigates the whole realm of the strange, profound, unknown, and unexplained, delving into paranormal, UFOs, cryptid, 
parapsychological and 14 events. The magazine can be downloaded every month for free in PDF format. Check out the show notes for a link to the magazine. All right, Michelle, I was going through the email and found a story for you. So take it away with Communication Corner. Yeah, we've got a story from Shane tonight. One summer, I was camping with a newlywed couple. We were at a lake near Commons here in Michigan. On the second night, I was woken up by something being hit repeatedly. I mean, hard hits. After about 45 seconds, I discovered it was rocks being smashed together. This went on for minutes. This camping spot takes 40 minutes of two tracks to get to. There was not another soul up there, especially someone smashing rocks in the forest at 3.40 in the morning. There is more to it, but I'm trying to keep this story brief. One early November morning, I was walking the bayshore at a local spot I like to ice fish. I was there just to see how far up the water was. I was paralleling the 10-foot-tall fragmites when I kind of spooked something that was in them. I thought it was a deer at first. Long story short, it somehow got from 100 yards away from me to within 15 to 20 yards through the hardest vegetation I've ever had to walk through, all while making minimal sound and following my footfalls exactly. It would stop when I stopped. It was bipedal. It was 100% walking on two legs. Once it was right on me, I ended up yelling and throwing rocks into the fragmites at this thing. It never moved. I threw possibly 16 rocks at this thing, and it didn't make a sound or move an inch. I headed back to my truck, and it followed me all the way back, which was probably 300 yards away. Again, there's more to this story, but that will have to be another time. All right. For those of you that don't know, a phragmite is basically what we would call a common reed or the very tall cattail type of plants that grow along the riverbanks. Yeah. And the stalks often can get almost like a, a bamboo texture to them. Yeah. They get pretty big. So they're big. not the easiest to walk through or move through. All right, Michelle. I think it is time to get Mr. Robert W. Sullivan the fourth on the line and get this interview started. Oh, yes. It's time to talk some symbology in the, the Hollywood films. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about Mr. Sullivan the fourth? Well, Robert W. Sullivan the fourth is a Freemason, philosopher, historian, antiquarian, jurist, lay theologian, writer, editor, mystic, radio, TV personality, showman, best-selling author, CEO, and lawyer. Ladies and gentlemen, let's go ahead and welcome Robert W. Sullivan IV. Welcome, Robert. It's great to have you on. Well, thank you, Wayne. Thank you, Michelle, for having me on your uh, show. It's my pleasure to be here. I look forward to uh, the conversation. I need to ask you first and foremost, I am not very familiar with the Masonic tradition. So what does it mean to be a Freemason? I know I've heard all these kind of things going back and forth, but what does it mean to be a Freemason and what drew you into those the Masonic traditions? Sure. It's a fraternal order. It's a secret society. It's probably better described as a society with secrets. Um, its true origins are lost to antiquity. We really don't know when 
it officially starts and you know when it, you know i mean you you can read different masonic historians that date it to different time periods it officially comes on the map on june 24th 1717 with the formation of the grand lodge in england it clearly exists before this though um there are masonic lodges in scotland there are masonic lodges in england um you know it, it is clearly in existence before 1717 and it incorporates Many traditions, um, like I said, it's a secret society, it's a fraternal order, it incorporates Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Gnosticism, you know, things related to the occult, like alchemy, um, Rosicrucianism, ideas related to universal knowledge and self-improvement and spiritual betterment. Um, I, I got, I why i i mean eat to, to, to ask like you know what it means that's a subjective question because it means something to do each and every freemason it means something different for me um you know it, it, the reason kind of it kind of a, you asked like why i got involved that kind of answers that question is because i come from a long line of maryland freemasons my grandfathers great-grandfathers loads of them were freemasons here in maryland um it's something that as a child um I was always very interested in things like, you know, magic, the occult, UFOs, cryptozoology, ghosts, the supernatural. This was something as a child that fascinated me. Um, I've been on other shows. One of my favorite TV programs was The Old In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy, um, which which I watched religiously. Yep, so, I remember um, that one as a kid. Yeah, of course. I'm dating myself, but, uh, you know, that, that was sort of one of my all-time favorite shows. But at any rate... Um, there, there are rules and regulations about how you can join. Um, it did not, it, I, I am a Freemason. My grandfather was, but it skipped over my father. And um, for me, I couldn't join till I was 21. And of course, at that time in my life, I was at college. Um, and the opportunity really presented itself in the summer of 1996. And it was through a mutual friend of my mother and father, um, a person who is no longer alive. And uh, I was out to dinner with them and he had on his Masonic ring. And I, during the course of the dinner, I was just talking to him. I said, Hey, I see you're a Freemason. This is something I always wanted to join. And uh, sure enough, we got the ball rolling on it. And I, I got the application. I filled it out. I sent in the check. And uh, I met with a committee that was assigned to me to interview me uh, to make sure, you know, everything was, you know, I wasn't, you know, I was basically a head, a torso, two arms and two legs and wasn't stark raving mad. And uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, 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 I was, you know, I was voted upon. And then in January of 1997, I went through the first degree, which is called the entered apprentice. Then in May of 97, I went through the fellow craft. And then in uh, September of uh, 97, I went through the uh, master Mason degree. And then in 1999, I became a Scottish right Freemason, which is one of the two main, high degree bodies of Freemasonry that kind of continues the education, the, the Masonic education. I, I always wanted to do it, you know, to be, I was a, in a college fraternity. I wanted to carry on the, the um, tradition. Certainly um, I've always viewed Freemasonry as sort of a very prominent organization, something to be very proud of. I certainly wear Masonic rings to identify my membership. And uh, the, the one thing that I did get out of it that I kind of wasn't expecting was this ability to see the world and see things through a symbolic lens. Um, and it's there in the lodge, but it's not necessarily presented in a way that it's more hinted at than it is presented to you. Um, and it, it's, it's sort of the way I can, only way I can really describe it is it puts you on the path, but it's up to the initiate to walk it. And if you sit down after you after you go through the degrees and you sit down and read people, 
you know, the giants of the Masonic fraternity, like the Manly P. Halls or the Albert Pikes um, or the Albert Mackeys, the Thomas Smith's Webbs, uh, the William Prestons, um, you'll really get a better handle on what this is trying to reveal and conceal. And you'll be able to understand, you know, that it contains these vestiges of the mystery cults and the mystery religions like Osiris and uh, the mysteries of Eleusis and uh, the Orphic mysteries and things like that. And uh, you will definitely begin to understand like, okay, you know, when I go in front of a, when I'm walking by a library, why is there a statue of Hermes in front of it? That will make sense to you. Um, so that was one of the things that I was really able to get out of it. And uh, yeah, like I said, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to ask, is that also true of like where we have uh, the obelisk like in Washington, DC? And I believe there's one in, is it Central Park or in New York? Well, the the the, the one thing that you'll begin to figure out is um, when you begin to understand the Masonic symbolism, um, and especially within certain of the, the, especially when it comes to some of the high degree bodies, um, there's one ritual in particular in the Scottish and York Rite. I wrote a book about it um, called the Royal Arch of Enoch. It's the 13th in the Scottish. It's the 7th in the York Rite. Um, and this is where a lot of the, philosophical doctrines that form the country are coming out of. And when you understand that, you'll understand, you know, a lot of the reasons why the Capitol building has a dome on it and why the obelisk sits where it does and why the street that connects the two elected branches of government is Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, this will all become, become made more clear to you. Um, as you as you begin to understand Masonic symbolism, how it's used, um, the philosophies behind it, the underlying theories and 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 philosophies, you know, behind the Masonic Lodge, um, and this was something that very much impressed upon me. Um, so much so that I wrote a seven hundred page book about it called The Royal Arch of Enoch. It was my first book, okay. um, and uh, you know, the the one sort of side effect this generated, which again, I sort of wasn't anticipating was um, it allowed me to watch these movies, popular culture and dissect them on an esoteric level, um, whether it be Gnosticism or alchemy or Freemasonry or the mystery religions or uh, archetypal imagery, uh, you know, and, and, and the collective unconscious and what these filmmakers are going for and what strings they're pulling in your subconscious mind. Um, this was something that I was able to do quite effectively. At least I believe I can, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but, um, I have written three books about it. And, yeah. uh, you know, the, the one thing that I always kind of liked with this study, whether it be the Freemasonic symbolism or the movie symbolism is it's, um, concrete, what I mean by that is you can see it. Um, so like, for example, if I were to put on a movie and point something out to you and say, Hey, did you see that? And you said, no, well, look at this again. And I explained it to you. I mean, you'll be able to see it with your own two, not two eyes. It's not like a case where, you know, we're like take Sasquatch for instance, where, you know, is it Bigfoot? Is it a Yeti? Or is it a guy in a gorilla suit? This isn't the case with the movie, you know, iconography it's there. I mean, it's there and it's irrefutable and it's just picking up on it. And when you do, it's like, oh, okay, now I'm beginning to understand what this filmmaker is going for. I understand why this is there and, you know, what, what's going on here and what they're trying to draw forth from the collective unconscious reservoir, things like that. And uh, like I said, you know, The Royal Arch is my first book and I've, uh, I've uh, subsequently written three movie, three books on the movie symbolism. 
Okay. Well, that kind of leads me then into the next question I wanted to ask you. And that was, you know, how did you get involved in analyzing films for occult symbology? Was it through the Mason's lens that, that allowed you to start seeing these things? It's a great question. And it was in a way, yes. Um, what happened was um, when I was writing the Royal Arch of Enoch uh, book, and again, it's a, it's a um, sort of magisterial book. I don't want to pat myself on the back again, but it deals with a lot of Masonic history and a lot of philosophies and perhaps a lot of figures that a lot of people probably aren't too familiar with. And so you have to explain and, and you know, lay out the lay out what's going on. People like, you know, the Jesuit Athanasius Kircher, Giordano Bruno, the Dominican Tomoso Campanella, John D. These are all characters, Vitruvius, the architect. These are all characters that maybe a lot of people never heard of. So you have to go very much in depth with this. Um, so when I was writing Royal Arch and I was kind of wrapping up the book, I, I wanted to bring the book up to the modern day. And I thought, you know, I, I kind of ended it with the United States of America being a Masonic Republic. And then I got into the symbolism and the architecture of Washington, uh, D.C. And I thought, OK, what would be a good way to end this book? And I thought, well, let's really bring it up to speed and do pop culture, Freemasonry and pop culture. Um, so what I did with the last chapter of the Royal Arch was dissect a, a, about four or five movies that were very Masonic, that had very Masonic um, undercurrents in it. Some they some of them had. Um, you know, were a little overtly Masonic, but had deeper undercurrents. Like, for example, the one movie that I analyzed in the Royal Arch of Enoch was the first National Treasure movie, which, of course, if you've seen it, you will realize that it, it, it revolves around Freemasonry. That's true. But what most people don't realize is that film is actually a Masonic ritual on celluloid. That entire film is the Royal Arch of Enoch ceremonial. And you say, well, you know, Rob, what are you talking about? Well, if you're familiar with the ritual, the ritual, the Royal Arch... Uh, ceremonial uh, documents the recovery of the Masonic Knights Templar treasure in a subterranean vault beneath the Holy Ground in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. But what's going on in the film? Well, it's the same thing. It's the recovery of the Masonic Knights Templar treasure in the subterranean vault beneath the Holy Ground. They said it in New York, which is an homage to a man named DeWitt Clinton, um, who was the former mayor of New York, former governor of New York, um, and who was a very prominent Royal Arch Mason. So I, I analyzed these four or five movies through this Masonic lens, National Treasure being one, Da Vinci Code was another. And when I was doing this, I, there were more movies I wanted to talk about, but they weren't necessarily Masonic. Uh, movies like Star Wars or The Matrix, uh, things like that. So I thought, okay, you know, let's end the, let's end the Royal Arch with, with this chapter on the Masonic films. And we'll continue talking about the esoteric themes and, and you know, undercurrents in film. And this became, you know, I thought, well, you know, let's just end the Royal Arch here and then we'll just do a book on the movie Symbolism, which became the first book, which was called What Else Cinema Symbolism. And of course, as I was writing that, you know, there's other movies you want to talk about. There's other movies you want to analyze. So, of course, this becomes Cinema Symbolism 2 and then eventually Cinema Symbolism 3, um, which was published about six, seven months ago. Um, I am actually in a, a, a beginning to outline CS4, um, but of course there are some movies that I've yet to see um, that I want to take a look at. So this book's still probably a little ways off. Like for example, the fourth matrix movie, um, I would have to um, believe that I haven't seen it. Of course, I've seen the trailer, but I have to believe that there's going to be something going on because there certainly is in the other one. So um, that's where I'm at right now. Okay. Interesting. And just so that 
Michelle and I know and we have a baseline and for our audience, when we talk about the word occult, my understanding of that word occult can mean many different things from a scientific standpoint, especially in like meteorology. We talk about occluded fronts, like weather patterns, and those occluded fronts basically mean they're like hidden. And and I can kind of see like the the correlation between occult and hidden or hidden knowledge. But there's also in certain respects where people say occult and they go down the path of demonism, demonology, evil. Witchcraft. Uh, witchcraft. And then the Masons seem to be brought up in this as well, because like you said, they seem to they, they are a secret society. Um what where should we be at with a good baseline? I figure you're probably the perfect person to ask when we think about the word occult. But what can mean many things when I traditionally use it, I mean it comes from the Latin word occultus, mean hidden. So you're right on the money with that. I use it to mean exactly what you're talking about, things related to um, magic or sorcery, and certainly things that are hidden, um, things that you, you can't pick up on, uh, that are there that necessarily, if you're not trained in occult symbolism um, or, you know, magic and sorcery and secret societies, it'll go by you. I mean, of course, it does have the common connotation of, you know, Ouija boards, black magic, sorcery, you know, darker sorcery, necromancy, I suppose is the word I'm looking for. But when I use it, um, I'm pretty much using it in, to mean like hidden um, or, you know, magic, uh, sorcery, even in, in, into to some something. But like when I use the word occult symbolism, I'm, I'm using it as to mean hidden symbolism. Um, so that's generally the way I use it. But again, it, 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 it is a, it is a, multifaceted word. Um, sometimes I shy away from it. Sometimes I do not. Um, it just depends on the context of how I'm writing. Um, it's not, it is a word that you will find in my books. Um, but you know, if, if I find something that's kind of like, you know, twisted or evil, um, that's usually the word I say. Um, like for example, um, there is, or, you know, dark, um, like for example, the movie Joker with Joaquin Phoenix. I mean, there are some really dark, dark, themes going on in that film um and that's what i call it you know i mean sinister um you know very bleak um you know that that would be more of the way i would describe it and, and um same thing with movies i mean you know some movies are very they use symbolism to be very uplifting um some use it to be very very bleak uh you will find this especially in the works of ari aster uh darren aronofsky uh, certainly um, Joker is another one of those movies you could throw in there. So if I'm dealing with a movie that's very, very dark and has these very grim uh, undercurrents, those are sort of the descriptors or the adjectives I would use to uh, analyze the movie. So Robert, let me ask you, was there a movie that surprised you with just how much occult symbology that there was in the film? Um, yes. I mean, there are some movies that I watch that, I kind of, it, it's, a, it's, it's funny. I, I, there are some movies that I watch and I kind of expect it and I don't really find some or I don't see it. And it's like, Oh, kind of disappointing. Then there are other movies that I watch thinking, Oh, there's probably not going to be a whole, a whole lot here. And um, it's overloaded. Um, the, the one movie that really stood out to me um, in, in recently um, was the, and, and was the movie Crimson Peak, Guillermo de Toro. 
um, he he's a very good expert with this. I mean, he knows what he's doing. He incorporates a lot of symbolism in, in his films. Um, and there was a there was in in Crimson Peak there was some things I could pick up on. But then I was I was watching it and I watched it again and I watched it again. And I started picking up on something that I thought to myself, no, he really can't be doing this. And I remember at one point seeing it and I thought, let me stop this film and start it all over again. And that's something I should point out also is when I'm, when I usually, well, not usually when I analyze these films, I always have to have it on DVD or Blu-ray. This for me is something I cannot do in a movie theater uh, just because of the note taking. And I need to see it more than once. And I have to be able to skip around. But the one thing with Crimson Peak that really just floored me was how much it was an homage to The Shining um, of uh, Stanley Kubrick, uh, um, which seems to be the latest trend now in Hollywood is paying respect to Stanley Kubrick, uh, especially if you're dealing with a haunted house movie. Um, you, you, the, the filmmakers now seem to be going out of their way to be paying tribute to Stanley Kubrick. Uh, this is especially true in some of the Conjuring movies um, of late, uh, especially the second one. Um, where where it, it deals with a haunted house in in England, um, and 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 they, there's a couple shining um, there's a shining homage in it that's a little noticeable, but it's fun. And then at one point at the very beginning, um, they actually put a Stanley Kubrick lookalike at the séance table with uh, and and with uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren. So um, yeah, I mean, Crimson Peak was one that just blew me away. Um, with, with what was going on. And at The Shining with Kubrick is another one. Uh, Black Swan with Aronofsky. Again, there were some things that were sort, sort of on its surface, but then you look at it again, second, third time, and there's some really latent symbolism that's really, really embedded in, in the celluloid. Um, so, you know, for me, it's always, uh, it's, it's always more than one watch. And, and I always, I've always, and I've said this on other shows, it does impress me um, the length sometimes that these filmmakers will go to to put this stuff in. And I, I've always felt this. I, I, I say this to you guys, and I've said it on other shows. It really, to me, sometimes feels like a game of chess with these filmmakers where they kind of cha- are challenging the audience to see if they can't pick up on these little homages, Easter eggs, occult undercurrents uh, that they're placing in pop culture. Do you think maybe they're challenging each other? Like that they know... They're each, you know, each director, producer are, are kind of doing these Easter eggs and they're kind of one up in each other. Well, I think I think that I think yeah, the answer to your question, I think, is yes and no. I think that when a filmmaker is making a movie, I think that they view the movie as high art. Um, and I believe and this is this goes back in time. Um, this is nothing new to Hollywood. I should point that out. Um this Hollywood is just the main is, is now the most recent vehicle iteration of this. The use of occult symbolism goes back way, way, way back. Um, I mean, you know, you, you will find hidden undercurrents in Mozart. You'll find it in William Shakespeare. You'll find it in Richard Wagner. You will find it in the writers of the 19th century American, American Renaissance Edgar Allan Poe, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Herman Melville, uh, Emily Dickinson, you will find all these same themes in, in, in their work as well. So Hollywood is just the most recent vehicle of this. And I believe that these filmmakers, I don't know if they're trying to one-up each other, but I think that they view this hermetic tradition that a lot of this symbolism and these themes come out of as almost like like uh, divine, almost. And, and many of the philosophers who were into hermeticism viewed it as a divine doctrine. So when I see it in film, 
I've never viewed it as evil or anything like that. I've always viewed it as they are using it to elevate the cinema, uh, the the medium of of movie making, to this high form of art, um, much like you know you will find in the works of like a, like a painter like Leonardo da Vinci, um, we will find these messages embedded in his artwork. Um, I I think that the really adroit, sophisticated filmmaker in Hollywood is playing around with the same thing, uh, architects as well. Um, you know, when it comes to like the layout of D- Washington, D.C., these guys are trying to create this sort of divine metropolis based on these hermetic, secret, supernatural, occult traditions that they know about, but many people do not. And I think that's where the suspicion comes in and the dark conspiracy talk comes in. And I think it's the same thing with these filmmakers. I think they view their movies as artwork and i think that that by including and i i believe it i mean i i don't disagree with them by including uh this th- these themes into their films um that that you know it, it enhances it that's my take on it. by hermeticism what do you mean by that what is the definition of that yeah the 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 word hermeticism is sort of runs parallel with the word of cult um it 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 it, 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 it ties into, it, it overlaps with a lot of traditions. Hermeticism, the word hermetic, um, and I'm not talking about like hermetically sealed or anything like that, comes from the word Hermes, um, which was a Greek god. He was the divine messenger. Uh, he's Mercury in, in the Roman faith. My wife it, is nodding feverishly <laughs> as she is a mythology I, teacher. I teach mythology to middle schoolers so <laughs> okay well then then you'll know exactly what you yes. pick up on in in hellenistic egypt the greek the greek hermes and the roman mercury um were merged with an egyptian god of wisdom known as thoth and he becomes this composite god and this comes here comes a real tongue twister for you this god's name is thoth hermes mercurius trismegistus and <laughs> trismegistus means the greatest of the three the thrice greatest say that 10 times yeah exactly and he (laughs) and there is out there he he is the alleged author of this work called the hermetica um and this is where you get uh these doctrines coming from these works called the divine pymander um the hermetica is broken into a couple sections the corpus hermeticum the body uh, hermeticum uh the latinus clepius and there are these dialogues between hermes and these other gods and they talk about how man is the supernatural creature and he can use occult wisdom to gain entry into these higher celestial spheres of knowledge when he passes on from this world and you will see parallels with this with things like gnosticism where the gaining of knowledge increases your spiritual awareness and you'll find this with running parallel with hebrew kabbalah with the sephirot with these spheres of wisdom that the soul must navigate in order to return to the supreme godhead so hermeticism embodies this notion of spiritual perfection transformation of the soul through the magic arts of alchemy gnosticism to ultimately awaken the human being to this, have have him have him or her have this sort of a gnostic or divine epiphany. What what is known in in the secret society is to know thyself, and then you become this sort of spiritual godhead on earth where you can, you know, you you are elevated. You're like a hierophant, and 
the idea is through this spiritual perfection, this perfection of the person, you can now navigate these super celestial spheres when you expire. The idea behind this is that if you are in, while you are here, if you are immured in materialism or consumerism, this is the symbolism of the Ouroboros, the snake biting its tail, that you just keep coming back, that you just keep recycling and reincarnating over and over again. What, these, what the Hermetic doctrine teaches is the more occult and esoteric wisdom you, you obtain, the easier it is for you to navigate these super celestial spheres when you pass away and ultimately obtain the Godhead. So that's what the, and of course you, you will see overlap here. I mean, this has to do with alchemy, which is spiritual alchemy. I mean, what's alchemy, you know, transformation of base metal into gold, but what's spiritual alchemy transformation of ignorance to wisdom. So the hermetic tradition is basically a kind of another way of saying sort of the occult esoteric tradition. And it all ties into Hermes and, and the, the, this, uh, the, the, these, you know, these sort of uh, forbidden um, or sort of, you know, controversial, um, texts such as the Corpus Hermeticum, the Latinus Clepius. I mean, you get into things like the Book of Enoch, which is another one. Uh, the 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 works of a guy named Pseudo Dionysius. Um, he 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 continues this Pauline tradition from Jesus, who basically held that Jesus Christ was this occult Magnus, and what he was saying in the Bible was just basically pablum for the people in the pews and Jesus was teaching this occult secret doctrine um, to his select followers. And again, if you read the works of pseudo Dionysus, this is coming from the teachings of St. Paul, who again gets into these same themes that you'll find in the, in Hermeticism, this idea of perfection of the person, perfection of the soul, navigating these celestial hierarchies. Um, so that's essentially what Hermeticism entails. Uh, maybe too much, very broad answer there, but in a nutshell, that's what it is. Well, it, what's going through my head while you're explaining this stuff is, is that that the occult, you, you could say that it, it's setting you up with these hidden clues, occult, uh, occluded clues as to awakening your consciousness or your, your spiritual self and, and becoming a higher being than just a materialistic you know, you're, you're now a, a spiritual being having a human experience, I guess, is an, another way I could say it. And these things, whether it's the Masonic traditions or the, uh, the films, uh, teachings of Hermes and Jesus and all these is to awaken this different part of you. Am, am I close? Yeah, I mean, and, and, and you know, this is what you're, you're seeing. What, what, what you're talking about and what I'm describing is this is what you see in the Matrix film, in the very first one, where you have this guy who is just this guy going about his every day, but he knows something's not right. He knows there's something more. And he realizes the reality that he's in is false. And he has, and he has this spiritual epiphany where he goes to the real world to have an understanding of who and what he is. Um, the Matrix movie is inherently a Gnostic film. Um, and th this is a complex uh, subject matter because you're dealing with different strains of Gnosticism. I'll just say it's a Christian heresy, but it has a lot of overlap with Christianity. Um, some of the characters play different roles, such as Jesus and things like that. But um, you will find these hermetic traditions, these the idea of spiritual awakening in many of the most popular films of all time. Uh, I mean, 
you know, Alice in Wonderland is, is the idea of a little girl, you know, going on the subterranean adventure to know herself, to realize, you know, the world of adults is basically BS um, and it's nonsense. Uh, Dorothy Gale in The Wizard of Oz undergoes the same thing. I mean, you know, the farm girl gets transported to the magical land, has the adventure, has the spiritual awakening where she comes to know herself, which for her is the understanding that there's no place like home. Um, so you will find these occult hermetic doctrines in, in pop culture in some of the most popular movies ever made. Most people aren't aware of it, but there they are. Um, this is where these guys, the Victor Flemings of the world, uh, you know, the L. Frank Baums of the world, who was in Madame Blavatsky's theosophy movement, you know, are getting this material from. Now, if you're not aware of these <laughs> things, are they still affecting you? Yes, because what what they are treading on is your subconscious mind. Mm -hmm. So they are affecting you, but you're just not aware of it. So like a uh, subliminal messaging kind of. It's, it's not. Yeah, that's a be careful of that word. That's okay. not what it is. Okay. It's not. It's not subliminal. It's more of what I would call. It's 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 it's. You have to be familiar with the works of people like Carl Jung, Emanuel mm -hmm. Schwettenborg, Jakob Berm, who get into this idea of the subconscious mind. Um, Giordana Bruner talked about this. It's not necessarily evil. Um, and that's why I hate the word subliminal because that, 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 it, that involves trickery to an extent. And it is, it may not be, it may not be consciously done, but the idea was that by exposing the person to the archetypes and exposing the person to these esoteric doctrine, esoteric doctrines, it's a form of divine enlightenment. It, the idea is it's, 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 it's going to hope to spurn you on to have your own awakening that you're going to watch wizard of Oz and say, Hey, you know, if this, if Dorothy can have this great adventure, I can have a great adventure in my life. That's what these guys are ultimately sort of talking about. Um, so I kind of shy away from the word subliminal. It is subconscious. Um, in some, in some cases for me, I'm, I'm aware of it. I mean, I know when I see it and I guess that's part of the reason why I wrote the book is to point this out to people. So I know it when I see it, um, so it's not subconscious for me because I could spot it, you know, I know it like the back of my hand now, but you know, when I was a kid watching star Wars, you know, why does that movie have such a pull? Why does that have such a draw on me? And again, it's, you're dealing with archetypal imagery archetypes that are all embedded in our subconscious mind. They're collectively shared. You have them. I have them. Michelle has them. And these filmmakers know that, and they are exposing you to that, to, you know, now some people will say, oh, they're manipulating you. I view it more as a form of enlightenment is the way I would best describe it. But yes, it is subconscious and it's, you know, you, you can cast a darker shadow on it if you want to. Speaking of that, going into uh, the darker shadow is, is there a film that you started analyzing and it went off into this dark end where you would maybe even and I'm showing my ignorance here on this, but you would, you would go into that realm of saying, this is a satanic film. It's, it's got hidden Satan, Satanistic uh, uh, symbology in there to, to draw people or maybe make people watching it a little bit more on the darker side, if that makes sense. I, I, I do. I've never, I've never watched a movie that I thought was, trying to draw people 
into devil worship or something like that. I have watched movies that I thought were very dark and very with very dark satanic themes. And I mean, very, very, very dark themes. Um, I mean, and you go back in time with this, um, the black cat with Karloff and Lugosi is a very dark film. Um, the Karloff character plays an Aleister Crowley analog who is a necrophile and um, is, it's, it's a very, very dark film. Uh, he's a Satanist. Um, he's a necrophile. Um, and it's, it's a very disturbing film. I mean, it, it, it's hard to believe that that movie was released in the early 1930s. Um, you know, and again, you know, the exorcist is another one and the exorcist is, is really a dark film because the, the one thing, the one thing that horror does that, I don't think any other genre does is it speaks to the generation that it was made at. Um, and, and horror has been with Hollywood since day one. I mean, you get into things like Nosferatu um, or the Golem uh, movies like that, or werewolf of London H- horror has been with Hollywood day one. And when you watch a horror movie, especially whether it be recent or ones that go back in time, you can see the generation almost that it was geared to. Um, if that makes sense. I mean, like for example, when you watch the old, Karloff and Lugosi horror movies, whether it be Dracula or Frankenstein or, or The Bride of Frankenstein, those are clearly geared for the Depression audience, uh, without question. When you watch The Exorcist in the early 70s, this is clearly designed, uh, this is geared towards pacifying the hippie generation and turning them into suburbanites. That is the sole purpose of that film, and you can see it plain as day. Uh, the whole idea of the Jesuits, the two sun priests, casting out the unruly demon is the whole idea of changing the sixties, the unruly sixties, pacifying them, casting out the unruliness. You know, the Jesuits are basically the state, you know, and suppressing everything, turning these radical hippies into suburbanites. Um, So, you know, you know, and and the exorcist has some very, very dark themes on it, but those are well known. Um, I would also throw in there the, the two movies of Ari Aster, um, these are very demonic films. Midsummer, um, right? Midsummer and, and Hereditary. Um, the, these movies are very, very dark, very, very demonic. Um, the, the one, the, there, there's some very unique things he does in those films that, um, well, like for example, in it, it's it's multi layered. A Joker is another one you could kind of throw cast into to this lot as well. Um, but like in Hereditary, the demon uh, Paimon. Um, is, is what the movie centers on. And he, he's a demon out of the Ars Goetia, the Lesser Key of Solomon. Um, if, if you watch Midsommar, you will, if you pay attention to it very closely, you'll number, you'll, you should pick up on the number nine is all over the place. Um, the number nine is permeated, uh, pervades that movie. And the reason why, there's two reasons. One is nine is critical in Norse mythology. Um, and of course, the, 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 whole, the whole film takes place in whatever is Sweden. So you're dealing with a lot of uh, Viking um norse norse is the word i'm looking for well that's sacred Um, isn't that sacred geometry as well in in uh when it comes to you know cosmos uh the the cosmos the 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 cosmic clock and the 360 degree circle and you know you you get into that angles and you know, multiples of nine always come back to nine. I, I'm really starting to hate the number. Nine. Well, no, just start stop with Norse mythology. How many realms are there? Nine. There's nine realms. Right. Yeah. But but in 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 Midsommar, he uses the number nine to convey um, 
this idea of Norse mythology. I, I list them all in the book. I can't recall them off the top of my head. But what was unique was, if you go back to Hereditary, which was all about payment, payment is actually the ninth demon identified in Ars Goetia. I couldn't help but think maybe he was somehow trying to resurrect this demon from his other movie and plant it in Midsommar because it's such a dark, you know, grim movie. Um, and it is. It's very demonic. It's, it's, it's a very, uh, you know, satanic film. At least I thought it was. Um, and again, you know, you know, you look at, I mean, movies that are, have very dark themes, Joker, um, with Joaquin Phoenix. I mean, the face paint is based on John Wayne Gacy, Pogo the Clown. I mean, you know, who's the child, child, you know, killed what, 33 kids and buried him in his crawl space. And then the, um, the, the music that, I mean, and, and this is another thing, um, when you're dealing with this occult themes and films, they're, they're this, these guys paint with a broad palette. Um, these guys have a, 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 a palette with lots of colors on it. You're dealing with music, costuming. Uh, the actors and the actresses that are employed can have hidden meaning. But then when the Joker, when, when Joaquin Phoenix comes out, he's dancing around down the steps. Uh, the music that's playing is a, a, a song called, uh, 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 what's it called? It's uh, by Gary Glitter. Um, I think it's called Rock and Roll Part Two, more commonly known as the Hay Song. And a lot of people aren't aware of this. Uh, Gary Glitter is a convicted pedophile. Um, so I found that very dark. I mean, you have, you know, the, the Joker Mason makeup being based on a child murderer, John Wayne Gacy. And then the idea of the Joker coming out of the closet, as it were, dancing around to the music of a pedophile. Very dark. I mean, v- very, very dark. But it's a very grim movie. Um, and again, this just reinforces the sort of bleakness uh, that you find in, in, in Joker. It's a great film, but very dark. Yeah, I Man, I love that film. And, and one of the things, um, when I was a lot younger and I had gotten out of the military, I was in a band and we played heavy metal music. And when I was in the band, there was these uh, uh, what they called death metal bands or black metal bands that were starting to come out of Norway, Finland, Sweden. And they all wore the face paint. You know, it was painting their faces white. I mean, it got to a point where they were burning down churches and, you know, they would, they would run around and burn down churches in Sweden and things like that. They were so anti-Christian and even in their music, but they always had their faces painted. And I heard somebody referred to like clown paint as corpse paint. They, they call it corpse paint. And that's what the Joker was supposed to be embodying was this this corpse and that's what clowns are supposed to be can you elaborate on that at all in in that time because i'll tell you that those black the and even today the black metal music and stuff yeah they will they will write music and, and the the really heavy stuff now is more of shock value you know cannibal corpse they're trying to make a horror film in your ears happen and being very gruesome and things like that but there's no real hidden things because they're just putting it out there in the open. But back a little bit in the day, like we had singers like King diamond who would paint his face white. He would have circles, three circles on his face. And it was to represent six, six, six an upside down cross on his forehead. And in a lot of his songs, he would, uh, you know, he would say 18 is actually nine. And it was always, uh, certain dates that were like 1777. He 
put numerology in all of his music, Merciful Fate, and then his King Diamond band. And the numerology was just all over the place. And these other bands were coming out with it as well. Have you branched into that? And, and can you touch on to that a little bit? Well, I, I, they do use films will use numbers um, to, to convey different things. Um, and a number is always a good tip off. Um, if, if you can link a number in a movie to something that's contextual, that's a good tip off that these guys are doing something under the surface. There's a great uh, numeric sequence in Black Swan by Aronofsky that when you figure it out, you'll realize, oh, this guy's really going for some deeper stuff. The only thing I, I, that, that I really researched was with Gacy with the clown paint was, and, and this is more of psychology than anything, was the paint that Gacy was using for Pogo and Patches. It was the same face paint. It was, uh, he just changed the costume was it's a, it's a, it's a design that professional clowns shied away from because, and they think Casey was doing it subconsciously. They didn't think he was aware of it was it's, it's, it was two triangles over the eyes and then it was a grin. And if you listen to professional clowns talk, they said, you want to stay away from um, sharp angles on, on face paint on clown makeup, because it, that, that has a tendency to terrorize children. Um, and if you look at the Gacy face paint for Pogo and Patches, again, it's the same thing. <clears throat> the two triangles around the eyes and then the grin and then the triangles were, were darker colors. The psychiatrists who analyzed this said he was trying to create a human skull. He was trying to make his face look like a human skull to terrorize children. Um, and that the, the, the Pogo and Patches characters weren't actually meant to entertain kids. They were actually designed to terrify them. And this was something Gacy, that was coming out of Gacy's, you know, twisted mind, subconscious mind. Um, and again, if you watch Joker, you will clearly see that the Joaquin Phoenix, Arthur Fleck face paint is clearly modeled after the Gacy, uh, you know, Pogo Patches persona. So I found that to be very dark. Um, but yeah, when, when, when you watch movies, or at least when I watch them, I always pay, um, I always try to pay strict attention to numbers. Um, it, sometimes they can carry very, very esoteric meaning. Um, sometimes not, but a lot of times with numbers, um, you know, you, you can get a tip off. Um, a number can tip you off as, you know, when, when I can pinpoint a number and I can find something that, you know, that, that it's linked to in the film contextually, that's usually a good indicator for me that I'm dealing with a very sophisticated movie maker, ergo his film, his film or her film is going to have occult undercurrents and symbols and themes in it. Is there a movie or a TV show that would surprise people to know that the, there is a cult symbolism throughout it. And then what does that symbolism represent? One that, One of, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, like uh, you're asking about TV, TV move, TV shows, uh, either TV or movie. And I've got one in mind that, that I loved, but I never watched it on TV. A friend of mine made me a bunch of copies of VHS of this show. And, and I want to see if you're going to say what I think you're going to say, because I was blown away years and years ago 
when I finally was able to watch it and then found out that it was never on, it, it was canceled after like two seasons. Yeah. You, I think you're talking about Twin Peaks. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, what you're dealing with, you're dealing with one of the occult grandmasters with David Lynch. Uh, we are dealing with a Manichaean. Um, everything with him is done in doubles. Uh, everything. Um, and you will find this permeating Twin Peaks. You will find it in uh, a lot of his films. Uh, 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 Lost Highway, certainly Mulholland Drive. Um, you know, duality is is all over the place in, in his film. Um, and you find this in, in, in Twin Peaks. So Twin Peaks, the TV show, is inherently an alchemical uh is an alchemical experience. Um, the first two series and fire walk with me are inherently alchemical because you were dealing with all the colors of Renaissance alchemy, red, black, white, and yellow, which I mean, the red room, uh, the white and black lodges, uh, th- this is all a tip off to alchemy. And this is explained to, to Hawk, uh, the, 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 the guy Hawk. He says, you know, this is the dweller on the threshold, that the whole purpose of the white and black lodges is what we've been talking about, perfection of the show, incorporation of the shadow self. Um, so we're dealing with alchemy. We're dealing with the idea of, um, you know, of, of, of spiritual alchemy in, in Twin Peaks. And, uh, of course, if, if, if you know anything about spiritual alchemy, we're dealing with the color red. That's the finality, the rubido. Um, and this is why you have the red room um, in it. And again, we have duality in the red room. I mean, you know, we have a midget, you know, the, the dwarf and the giant. Uh, we, you know, I mean, duality is all over the place. I and mean, we have Maddie, we have Laura, you know, the whore and the virgin. Um, we have the two statues of Venus in the red room, the Medici and the Milo modesty and impurity um so we're constantly dealing with um themes of duality with with uh with with lynch and then you get into with twin peaks then you get into the one that just came out a few years ago uh the return and this is where you get into the gnostic cosmology of twin peaks where you know cooper is the gnostic christ uh, Laura is the fallen Sophia. The fireman is the monad. The fireman, or the 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 uh, the the bums are the archons. Uh, you know the 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 um, Bob is the demiurge. You you know you you get into the whole Gnostic cosmology of Twin Peaks. So yeah, I mean I mean Lynch Lynch is very very. I, I've been on other shows and I've been asked about Lynch and he is heavy lifting. Um, to say the least. I mean, there is always so much going on in his film, in his works. Um, I, I, you know, you know, it was it was one of the things when I first did a chapter on Lynch. It was in uh, Cinema Symbolism Two, and I, I think I analyzed maybe three, four movies because I mean, you could do a whole book on him. Um, I mean, I did, I did, I did more Lynch in CS Three with movies like Eraserhead. Um, I did Twin Peaks in CS Three. I did Mulholland Drive and I think Blue Velvet and maybe one more in CS2. But no, I mean, you know, he, he is, you know, a straight mannequin, duality, doubles. They're all over the place. So he would fall into the, the Gnostic side of, of symbolism then in his films. I would call him Gnostic duality, lots of duality, uh, alchemy, um, yeah, I mean, archetypes, you know, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he's, Lynch is heavy lifting. I mean, Lynch is one of those guys where, 
you're going to have to watch the movie multiple times to pick up on what he is aiming at in his films. Yeah. Now, do you know the reason why is there some kind of a, a, a tie-in with Gnosticism when it came to the, the little person, the scenes that they did with the, the little person. And I believe it was the little person in the black lodge. Yeah. The, the, the arm. Uh, yeah, he's, yeah. he hangs out. Yeah. He hangs out in the black lodge, um, you know, or the red room, uh, right. you know, right. which, which, you know, which, you know, Lynch is ambiguous on this. Um, you know, you know, that that's part of the problem with, with Lynch is he's somewhat hard to pin down because, um, you know, some, some of his stuff is, is like, you watch a movie like Lost Highway. I mean, it's impossible to get a definitive take on that. I mean, that's the way he wants it. Um, and it's the same thing with Lynch is one of those guys where sometimes when you watch him, you don't know whether if you're watching a genius at work or if you are watching an Ed Wood ripoff, um, you know, and, and, and what, what I say in the book is one of the points I make is, you know, you watch a Lynch movie and it's heralded as this, you know, sort of surreal work of art of a, an eccentric genius. But, you know, you take a movie like Eraserhead, and I, I say this point blank in my book, I said, if you take Lynch's name off of it and put on Ed Wood's name, would this movie still command the same high artistic value that it does now? Or would it be viewed as schlock? You know, you know, and it probably would be viewed as schlock if you put Wood's name on it. But if you put Lynch's name on it, it's high art. So, you know, you know, when I watch Lynch and I watch movies like Fire Walk With Me, you know, it's it's sometimes hard for me to believe that this is the same guy who made Blue Velvet. Um, because, you know, you know, you know, Fire Walk With Me is just, you know, most schlock. Um, but, you know, you know, am I supposed to laugh at this or bow down before it? Um, and that's what you get with Lynch. Um, you know, I mean, and you, and you get movies that are just supreme works of art that are just fantastic, like Mulholland Drive, Blue Velvet. And then you get movies like, you know, Eraserhead, where, like I said, if you put Ed Wood's name on it, it would be considered crap. But Lynch's name was on it. So it's high art. So, you know, I always keep that in mind when you're watching Lynch. Now, back to the the Black Lodge and the Red Room I was under the understanding and I forgot if they said this, like on the special features of the, the show, you know, on the DVD or whatever the case may be, but the, the little actor had to learn his lines and say them backwards. And they recorded him walking to like the chair backwards and talking backwards anything that was happening in that lodge was done backwards. And then they played it back forward for us. So like, as the watcher, you're hearing this weird, strange dialect that's being spoken. It's, it's English, but it right. sounds wrong. And then when you find out, Oh, well he recorded it, them saying the lines backwards and walking backwards. That's why he's walking so strangely when he gets up from the chair and goes across the room and he's dancing, he's actually dancing backwards. Was there, is there some type of a, is, is there something to that, some kind of symbolism or was that more of like, I'm going to do something kind of artsy, uh, you know, like I'm going to have my camera angles down lower to show the ceiling of the set, which most people don't do because there is no ceilings to a set. So I'm going to have this guy do this or was there some kind of really, like 
dark meaning behind having the actor do that his lines and those scenes in that way well like you know you have you have backward speech in alice in wonderland so i mean i've always felt like lynch was trying to evoke that that it was sort of this uh, you know wonderland is this place of you know craziness so i kind of i kind of always thought that and then if you're familiar with the works of Aleister Crowley, uh, Moonchild, in that book, there's a black and white lodge. And of course, Crowley was the magician who said, the magus must learn to walk backwards, talk backwards, do everything backwards. So, so I it was, was like an homage sort of, to Crowley? Yeah, an homage to Crowley, probably, um, in there as well. And I talk about that in the book. So, you know, Lynn, you know, those are... The, the the Twin Peaks. I mean, Lynch is very esoteric. I mean, he he does incorporate a lot of Gnosticism, alchemy. So you know, to find Crowley turn up or Lewis Carroll or Alice in Wonderland, um, you know, not surprising at all. But uh, the one thing, the one thing that if I want to stress anything to the listener, when you watch Lynch. Uh, when you watch a film of David Lynch, it's duality. That's all he's about is repetition and duality. He will always have two things. It's, there's always two things of the polar opposite in his movies. That is the one thing that almost always carries through, whether it be Blue Velvet. I mean, you have the whore and the virgin. Um, you know, Mulholland Drive, you know, Diane and Betty are complete polar. The same woman, two different people. Um, it, it's always all about duality when it comes to Lynch. It's always two of the same thing or two things, you know, the same actor playing two different people. It's, it's all about duality when you watch Lynch. You know, I, I'm really interested in hearing some of the more, some more of the examples that you have on Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. So, um, one Jabberwocky is one of the poems that I actually teach within the seventh grade curriculum um, in my school. And then Alice in Wonderland is also one that I look at different themes and discuss with the kids. What is your insight as far as just even a couple things that you've noticed with Lewis Carroll's work? Yeah. Um, Lewis Carroll, real name Charles Dodson, was a uh, math tutor at Christchurch at Oxford mm-hmm. University. And um, yeah, he, he was in something known as the Cyclical Research Society, which investigated uh, the paranormal and supernatural. And yeah, I mean, you know, he, he, you know, was well-versed in this stuff and, you know, or at least was aware of it. And when, when you get into things like Alice in Wonderland, the one thing that, you know, the one thing that it is inherent inherently is it's a journey of enlightenment. It's this little girl going through these trials, these tests these levels of spiritual purification, whether we call them the celestial hierarchies, uh, the Kabbalistic, you know, Sephirot. Um, this is sort of akin to what Joseph Campbell calls the road of trials, where these, these levels of spiritual of purification, where the person becomes wiser and has this epiphany at the end. Um, Carol, Carol plays, um, plays around with uh, with uh, the one thing that I like that he does, and I know he does this, um, is the whole thing of, um, and bear in mind, uh, Carroll was a mathematician. He pays homage to one of his fellow uh, mathematicians, a guy by the name of John Dee, who was one of the main currents of Rosicrucianism, him and Giordano Bruno. And you have that in there where the the pages are painting the rose bushes white to red, uh, that's an homage to Rosicrucianism. You'll find that in the Lost Atlantis by Francis Bacon as well, where the um, 
the the guy from Solomon House wears the white turban with the red cross, um, which is an allusion to the Rosicrucians. These are sort of the proto Freemasons, and uh, the the whole idea of painting the rose bushes from turning them white to red is a reference to John Dee. Um, of course, if you're familiar with uh, the the works of uh, Spencer, the Fairy Queen, John Dee turns up in that as well. He's the Red Cross Knight. Um, this is again a reference to the Rosicrucians, which Dee's line of hermetic thought is is one of the main threads, if not the main thread, into the Rosicrucians. Um, so in Carol's, um, and of course Dee was a mathematician, just like Carol. So the the, the whole thing of the painting of the rose bushes is an allusion to Dee and the Rosicrucians. Um, and then again, you'll find D in Shakespeare, um, uh, Prospero in the Tempest is John D, um, in, in, uh, you know, and again, uh, you know, when you do with Rosicrucian, you're doing with Giordano Bruno, he's, uh, he turns up in Shakespeare as well. He's Barone in Love Laborers Lost, um, is Giordano Bruno. So again, you know, when you're dealing with these occult themes, we are predating Hollywood here. And that is critical to understand. Hollywood is just the latest vehicle of this. This goes way back in time. Um, and again, you know, you'll find it in these in the works of these great authors, uh, Lewis Carroll being one of them. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I think we're going to take a little break here and uh, hear a word from our sponsors and give Robert a chance to get a, a little break in. And so are we. So we will be right back with you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right, so we are back with Robert W. Sullivan, the fourth author, Freemason, historian. Is there anything you don't do, Robert? Uh, well, yeah, I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't go uh, skydiving or anything like that. Yeah. Um, no, I always try to, uh, you know, I don't know. I, the um, I've always tried to keep an accurate description. Some of the words, some of the descriptors of me on my website or when my introduction are there for a reason. Um, I'll just tell you a quick story about this. One of the, um, when I first started doing this, um, this was eight years ago. Now I would occasionally not often um, get an email from a fellow Freemason who was maybe a little upset with something I was talking about, or was a little disturbed by something. Um, You know, maybe I said something controversial. So, so because of that, they were rare, but I'd get them enough. Um, and, And it was because of that, that I added the word, uh, showman uh, to the to, to my description because um, and and this is what I you know I said you know when I do shows such as yours or whatever I mean I must be 
afforded a certain level of theatrics, a little controversy and things like that. So I added that. And then, then so someone asked me, um, I get asked sometimes what's an antiquarian, which is just a fancy way of saying a historian. So I kind of repeat myself there, but I always like the word. Um, and, uh, yeah, so no, I, uh, there's probably a couple other things I could add. I, I do a lot of editing work. Um, mm. I'm re-editing a lot of my books now, but I always left that out. I, I don't consider myself an editor. Maybe I should. I I, I, I do some artwork. I, I paint and I draw. I could add artist, I guess, but I don't really add that. <laughs> um, so no, I just kind of keep it short, simple, I guess. All right. I want to ask you a question and I know you hinted on this and I want to dive a little bit deeper on this question, but in everything that you've studied so far when it comes to this occult symbolism in movies, why are movie makers putting this type of symbolism in movies? What are they, what is the end goal? Oh, I think, I think, uh, I think for them, it's, 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 uh, I think it's transformative. I think it transforms the film into a, a higher form of art. Um, like I said, it, it's much like an architect using sacred geometry when constructing a building or plant, you know, or you or using a ley line or something like that. Um, or, or, or an artist, a painter like Da Vinci incorporating a, a double meaning or a hidden message in their artwork. I, I think it falls into that category. Um, you know, I think that when a, a filmmaker is using these hermetic threads and occult symbols and themes um, in their film movie, the idea is it to elevate it um, into elevate it, perhaps into something even spiritual. Um, so, so I've I my study has led me to believe that the motivation, um, you know, for for these filmmakers is to transform the movie, the celluloid, into something more than just a film it transforms it into art with these hidden meanings and these you know hidden clues um you know that that, that suggest um that the film is just more than a story about a little girl going to a magical wonderland that this is actually incorporating the gnostic religion and that, that that's what it is to me that it's 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 something that is they're using these themes to elevate the movie into something much more um, enlightening than just, you know, a popcorn movie. Well, there's something that happens to the, the human mind, isn't there? When you're watching a film and you get so pulled into it that, I mean, we see this with horror films, people jump when they're scared, even though they're looking at a flat screen with pictures being shown on it and it scares them. You, you get immersed in the film and, and you actually suspend disbelief. You, you, you are, are opening yourself up and putting yourself right in that scenario, right in that film, right where that place is happening. Um, it, is that an elevation of the consciousness or a way for them to put these symbols in there and, and awaken you? Because for me, there were two films as a small child that I remember, and one was in 1977, and that was Star Wars that awakened the, the, the samurai warrior motif of the Jedi Knight within my head that I spent a lifetime studying martial arts from that, learning 
Japanese, uh, Iaido, Kendo, Kenjutsu, Jujitsu, and and it that and Enter the Dragon by Bruce Lee. Sure, I was so in there. I was there and I knew what I was going to do and what my path was from that point on. When you're in these films, is that, are they trying to trigger that inside of people as well, or maybe younger children or. Well, the idea is what, what you're saying is sort of what, what is, is, is the idea of when you're dealing with movies like enter the dragon and star Wars, you're dealing with the idea of the archetypes. These are, you know, this is what Jung talks about in the subconscious mind. And the idea is that exposure to the archetypes, this is what Giordana Bruner talked about, is a form of enlightenment and puts you on your divine path. So if you're watching Star Wars and you get motivated to do study jujitsu, then the, then they're going to say, well, you're you're on your path. You're walking the yellow brick road. This is what Dorothy Gale walked. You're, this is your spiritual enlightenment. This is for you to know thyself. Um, this is the ultimate goal of this. So in that instance, um, you know, it's, 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 it is, it's a form of spiritual awakening. Um, and, and, and this is what, you know, I don't disagree with you at all. I mean, let's be honest, this film cinema is probably one of the most, if not, if not the most uh, most critical, persuasive, important mediums ever created, uh, no doubt about that. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I mean these these films are potent, they're powerful, um, and and they resonate, and they and they, re- and they resonate because they, they ultimately are about us. I mean, they may be fiction now; some of them may be true stories, but they're ultimately about the human experience. And, and I think that's why they resonate so much. And uh, I mean, that's part of the reason why they resonate so much. And, um, you know, again, when, when, when you understand the archetypes and what people like young um, and these people were talking about and, you know, how they affect us, you know, it, you can clearly see why these movies make the, mo- the, the ton of money they make and why people are so drawn to them. I mean, like, f- for example, look at star Wars, the Lord of the Rings and the matrix. It's the same story. I mean, it's the same thing just repackaged with new names. Harry Potter, right? Harry Potter. And Harry Potter is another one. You know, it's, 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 it's the common person plucked from the populace going on this magic adventure to defeat a dark overlord. I mean, I mean, not, not only is that, you know, the same story, but where have I heard? I mean, it's religion. I mean, right? I mean, it's it's Christianity. The guy coming down here to combat the dark, evil overlord. Well, isn't that what Luke Skywalker does? Isn't this what Neo does? You know, isn't this what Harry Potter and Frodo Baggins, you know, are all about? So, you know, I mean, it's it's a very spiritual form of enlightenment. And these, I believe these filmmakers are completely aware of this. I don't buy into the argument of all that they don't know what they're doing or this is a coincidence. I think sometimes it can be, but I think these guys are too expert for this. And again, when you watch, I mean, you know, when you watch films like Aronofsky or Kubrick, you know, or Ari Aster, I mean, these guys really know what the hell they're doing. Yeah. I just, again, I find it very fascinating and, uh, I was just thinking back, you know, back to when I was a child and in the path that I was put on because of a couple films Uh, and I was seven years old and it just dawned on me like, wow, 
I structured a whole bunch of my life around this warrior path, learning some Japanese, learning the, the code of Bushido, learning their fighting arts and their history. And, you know, I wanted to live in Japan there for a while, all because of a lightsaber and people dressed in robes acting like samurai, you know, serving the, the force versus, you know, the Sith, like it's really, it makes me wonder, geez, what would I have done if I didn't see those movies? (laughs) Right. It's it's the same thing happened to me. I mean, you know, when, when you look at the Jedi and stuff like that, you see the samurai, but you can also see the Knights Templar, you know, the religious order that, you know, is, you know, you know, combating, uh, you know, you know, the, the, the sort of monastic uh, side of the Jedi Knights, you can clearly see in the Knights Templar. And then for me, what you're talking about with Japan, um, and you, you probably are familiar more about this than me, was the one thing I was always interested in and got into was not only the samurai, but I thought to me was the sword makers, you yes. know, guys like uh, Muramasa and uh masamuni i thought those guys were really interesting as well you had again you know it's like duality you had muramasa who was sort of the divine you know you know um or or, uh masamuni who was uh the the divine one and then muramasa who was the satanic sword maker you know all his blades were evil i always thought that was you know with the different color of the lightsabers i always thought that was really interesting so no i'm kind of on the same page that you're on with this And what was interesting, too, is that even though it's a different culture, a different time and everything, when it came to the samurai and the the fashioning of the katana, the long sword that, you know, they always said that was the embodiment of the soul of the samurai. Yeah. You know, and, and that's something very interesting to say. I mean, your soul is your sword. So what what are the undertones and what are you trying to teach with that because i always learned that there were there was two types of sword play or sword fighting there's uh katsu jinken which means the life-giving sword and then there's the one that is the death-giving sword right Right. that duality one you you've you get into a, a duel with somebody or a sword fight with somebody and maybe you lop off their hand or you just cause enough damage so that they will not fight again, but you gave them their life. Whereas you go into a death match and it's, you know, it's your life's on the line. The, the, it, it's the, the death giving sword. So, you know, and then to say that your soul is the embodiment of inside that sword is really a unique thing. I think to, uh, to think about <laughs> no i agree with you I, it, it is i i've always uh liked uh you know the stories with the sword makers and stuff like that it's good stuff and it's certainly reflective of of the the lightsabers with the uh jedi knights and the sith i i totally agree with you so in in for our audience um if there seems like there's a lot to unpack here i mean i I'm a neophyte on this stuff as well. I mean, there's, there's so much going on here. Well, if we're all the way back, you know, 2000 years to medieval Japan, talking about these archetypes and things that were thought of by a a whole nother culture, but still human beings, 
we could spend a lifetime and probably not even get close to a good understanding of everything that's going on here. No, I, I agree. I mean, again, you're dealing with in these films themes, you know, again, you're dealing with these themes that are very ancient, um, you know, hermeticism, Gnosticism. I mean, these are, you know, ancient, ancient doctrines that go way, way back. Um, you know, so, you know, you find them in Persia and, and the Middle East. Um, so, you know, again, this is uh, just and again, you'll find these, like I said, in Shakespeare, Mozart, Wagner, um, Tolkien. Um, again, Hollywood is just the latest incarnation of it. All right. So I want to switch gears just a little bit. And this dips a little bit more into the paranormal but what is what is your thoughts on Hollywood in these movies trying to e- either their predictive programming because they are snatching ideas out of this ether that might be coming from a, a different place, something supernatural or paranormal, and they write these films, and then maybe a year later, the thing happens. Or is there people that are making these films because they want these things to happen? So I'm thinking like nine 11. I mean, the famous one that everybody talks about is the lone, the lone gunman, the X files, nine 11, the flying of airplanes into the twin towers. And, and everybody's like, Oh my God, they talked about this forever. Was this something that maybe they were trying to make happen? Or was this a warning from the other side? Or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's predictive programming is somewhat I shy away from. This to me is where what you're talking about is where movies are prophetic, where movies predict the future. And 9-11, there are a lot of examples on. Um, It's not the only one. Um, I think it was two weeks before Three Mile Island, the China Syndrome was released. And the stuff with 9-11 is just so uncanny. uh, my, my my take on it is this. I mean, I don't I don't believe that there are a bunch of filmmakers in Hollywood that have access that are looking into a crystal ball saying, oh, you know, this is coming. Let's plant it in a movie. I find that next to impossible to believe. On the other hand, this is clearly happening. Um, I mean, the the examples of 9-11 are really astounding. It's funny you bring this up because I'm actually going to consider writing a chapter just on the 9-11 stuff in the next in the next book, Um, because you mentioned the lone gunman. There's the Matrix movie. uh, um, There's the Patriot. Um, And then what makes it even more bizarre is is the dates. Um, I mean, I think, you know, you have. 9-11 9-11 symbolism and fight club which was released almost two years to the day before 9-11 i think it was september 21st 1999 and then in 1997 on that same date september 21st so again we're almost two years to the date was the simpsons episode called homer versus new york city this is the one where bart waves the money so we are clearly in a realm of it's not only being presented on film it's almost a countdown to it and it's it's and like I said, if this was one or two things, you could maybe write it off of coincidence, but it's, it escalates as you get closer to the actual event. So then you have to ask yourself and, I mean, pose the question. It's clearly there. You can clearly see it. I mean, I'm a lawyer. I can see it as plain as day. So then you have to account for it. And, and how can I rationally account for this? And the way I 
the way what I've come up with is the idea of what Carl Jung talked about was that the collective unconscious is not only inherited, but it's predictive. And what I mean by that is, and again, you're getting into a lot of platonic philosophy relating to Plato, the Greek philosopher, who essentially said that the creative process is a form of divinity. Um, and again, and you find this echoed in the Hermetica, which we talked about earlier on the show. The, re- the religion that is presented in the Hermetica is one of creativity. That is, the more creative the person is, the more divine they are. And the idea is that if you're creating a, um, or making a movie, which is a highly creative process, you are, like you said, somehow tapping into this ethereal realm, the world of the supernatural, let's call it that. And you are somehow subconsciously embedding um, these these prophecies in your film. I don't like to use the word predictive program. It's prophecy. Your film is becoming a prophecy. You're predicting the future. Um, So that's how, that's where I am with it. That's how I, that's to me is the most logical, rational explanation to it. Um, There are instances where Hollywood works with the government um, specifically the CIA and, you know, you know, more of the clandestine, you know, with, with, with Hollywood. I mean, you, you know, you will clearly see, um, you know, for example, the first couple universal Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce Sherlock Holmes movies are clearly war propaganda, Yankee doodle dandy war propaganda. Um, the United States military announced the creation of a rail gun through the transformer movie. So this isn't unheard of either. But when it comes to the things regarded 9-11 and movies really kind of sort of prophesizing future events, I'm at the point where I believe it's supernatural. I think that makes it much more interesting to me than man-made. And that's really the only way I can rationally justify it as a lawyer is that this is coming out of the – that this is a creative process, that you're tapping into this ethereal realm, and this is a supernatural event you're witnessing. I always do my best thinking and lesson planning when I'm in the shower and I heard somebody talking about, (laughs) and and this is funny, but when you're in that, in, in the shower and you're the moment of clarity, (laughs) well, but your brain goes into what I believe it's called theta, a a theta state, which is a creativity state. Like when your brain becomes the most creative when it's awake and by by medit it's like a meditative type of relaxing that puts your brain in this place where now all the creative juices are flowing you know and i wonder if that's like where you can tap into this other realm of creativity where this predictive programming may be able to happen and where they come up with some of these things or or your mind is open during that state, I just I just found it fascinating when I heard about this predictive programming. I was like, hmm, I wonder if that's kind of what's going on, or it's the same mental state. If you are, if you're a professional creator, writer, artist, you know, a filmmaker, your mind might always, or ninety percent of the time of your waking state, be in that in that theta state because you're always in that thought process of creating. Well, yeah, but but I, I don't disagree, but I think that the, the, the imagery being planted relating to 9-11 is unintentional. I mean, I think it's just coming out of the, the, the world of the supernatural, that the, the act of creation, of making a movie, is somehow 
and I can't explain it, is somehow tapping into this collective unconscious supernatural realm. How that's happening, I, no one knows. I mean, yeah. I can't give you an answer for that. No one can. But it's, that's what seems to be going on here. All right, we're going to get ready to wrap it up here. I know your time is is coming up and limited. So while we got to these last couple minutes, have you had any kind of paranormal experience yourself that you would like to relay to our audience and to us? Sure, absolutely. Um, it's not something I get asked often, but I certainly have no problem talking about it. I, I do. I do have a ghost experience and I have a UFO experience. Um, I'll st- the, the first one was the UFO, uh, but I'll start with the ghost one first. Um, this occurred um, in, uh, let's see here. This would have been in, um, in April, in probably, in probably late March or early April of 1995. I was a senior at Gettysburg College. Um, I should have been in the class of 1994, but I took a year off. So I was there in 1995. And um, I, I wasn't drinking. I wasn't doing anything funny. I was over at the library. And, and this, this was, um, again, this would have been probably somewhere in the, in the last week of March or in April. It wasn't May. It was somewhere in that time, five-week time frame. And the weather was warm. It wasn't cold. I was over at the library, the Musselman Library, which was 24 hours. And it was late. Um, it was probably around two, three o'clock in the morning. I was over there. I was doing work. I was either researching it. I wasn't pulling an all nighter, but I was doing something over there, reading or whatever. And I, I left and I had to walk uh, back to my fraternity house, which was off campus. Um, it was about a block into a residential neighborhood. And I walk, I was walking back. It was dark. I w- it was completely safe. Um, again, no one was around. I walked past the cafeteria. Uh, the dining hall, and I got into the residential area. And as I'm walking along, I see this light out of the corner of my left eye in the street. I'm on the sidewalk and this is in the street. And my initial reaction was, okay, is this a bicyclist or a car? Is some car slowing down or something? But at this point, I wasn't worried because I was somewhat close to my fraternity house. Um, And I knew that there'd be at least three or four brothers awake watching TV, you know, on the first floor. So I wasn't worried. I wasn't scared, but I thought, you know, what's going on here? And I'm walking along and I didn't, I didn't acknowledge it. I'm I'm just still walking along. And as I'm walking, the the, the thing is moving completely um, parallel with me. So kind of, if I start slowing up, it starts slowing up. And if I start speeding up, it's speeding up. And I finally thought, okay, I got to acknowledge this thing. And I turned and I looked at it and I'd say it was about 10 feet away from me in the middle of the road. And I was looking at an orb, um, a yellow orb glowing light in the, in the, in the road, just floating there in the middle of the road. This wasn't a bicycle. This wasn't a person holding a flashlight. I mean, it was just an orb floating there. I'd say it was somewhere between the size of a grapefruit and a basketball, I'd say floating about four, maybe five feet off the ground, probably closer to four, um, just kind of, and I, I was probably, I'd say it was about 10 feet away from me, maybe a little closer, maybe six, seven. Um, and I just remember looking at it and thinking to myself, this is something I'd never seen before. This is clearly some sort of supernatural occurrence. It's a ghost or something. I mean, I'm in Gettysburg. This is, you know, one of the most haunted towns in America. And the next thing I knew is I just turned my head away from it and I could still see it out of the corner of my eye. And I just took off. 
I just took off running to my fraternity house. I thought I just got it. You know, I don't know what this thing is. I don't know if it's hostile or friendly or what. I just turned and ran as fast as I can. I could the block block and a half to my fraternity house. And when I got in, sure enough, there's a couple, you know, brothers sitting around watching TV. And, and they, the first thing they said to me was, you look like you saw a ghost. I said, yeah, I just did. Um, I saw this floating orb um, kind of trailing me, you know, you know, leaving the library, um, you know, it, you know, once I got into the residential, you know, part of, of, you know, once I, once I left campus and got up into the you know neighborhood was where this thing turned up. So that was my ghost experience. My UFO um, happened in high school. Um, and this would have been around 1988, 89. And it was in the fall or spring. I can't recall, but the weather was warm. It wasn't cold out. There wasn't snow. So it was in the autumn or the spring. And off the top of my head, I think it was, you know, I can't remember. It was, it was one of the two. There were leaves on trees. So it may have been in the spring. I was, it was a weeknight and it wasn't the weekend. And I was at a friend's house and we had a project we were working on. It was me and about two other people. And I'd gotten a lift from another friend. And I, uh, these people remained completely nameless. And it was probably around 10 o'clock at night. And we weren't doing anything funny. Again, no drinking, no smoking, nothing like that. Completely above board. Probably around 10 o'clock at night and I was leaving. I, we had to break it up. And I, 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 my friend was like, come on, you know, I'll, I'll give you a ride home. We got in the car and uh, we, we turned. We got out of the neighborhood. And I can tell you where it happened. Um, and you can Google this or whatever. It was on Old Pimlico Road in Baltimore County approaching Falls Road. Um, this intersection has somewhat changed now. Back then, um, there was no traffic light. Um, now there's a traffic light there. We're heading down uh, Old Pimlico towards Falls. And over the tree line in front of me, sitting about 10 feet over the tree line, is this rectangular box. Um, huge. Um, and I'm looking at this thing. And I'm, we're, we're driving right towards it. I mean, it's moving slowly over the tree line towards us. And I'm looking, you know, we're, we're driving on the road and, and the, the tree line is, is past the intersection. I said to my buddy, I said, you see this thing coming at us up here? I said, I mean, what the hell is this thing? And he says, yeah, I see it. And I said, it's a rectangle. I said, there's no wings on it. I, I said, I mean, it, 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 I said, you know, are you seeing what I'm seeing here? And he said, yeah, we get, we're, we're getting closer. It, it was a black rectangle, perfectly black rectangle. Uh, it had two lights coming out the front of it two coming out the bottom and, and I got a real good look at this thing. Cause we come down to the intersection. Well, right now the thing's over top of us. I roll down the window and I stick my head up and look up at this thing. It is completely silent there. I mean, you could have heard a pin drop, no noise coming out of this thing, no propellers, no exhaust, no engine. It's just hovering above us. I look up and in the center of it are, are red and green lights circling, making a circle pattern in the center of this thing. There's four spotlights, two coming out the front, two coming down the bottom. And it's just this perfectly black box rectangle, just slowly moving over the tree line. And we, I turned, I had my head out the window. I'm looking up at this thing and we turn on the falls road. And I said to my buddy, I said, uh, you know, I said, that that's a UFO, man. I said, I said, that is definitely, and he said, he said, I agree with you. My vibe that I got out of it was, I never believed that this thing was being piloted by little green men. The, the vibe that this thing was throwing off was that it was some sort of government reverse engineered spacecraft that the government was, I felt this was a government ship 
that had been created from UFO technology. That was the vibe this thing was throwing off. And we, we continued on Falls Road and we got to Ruxton Road. And I remember going up Ruxton Road and I could I could look out. I, I remember looking back over back over at, at, you know, over in the distance and you could still see it. You could still see it floating along um, the tree line. I'd say I'd say its length was probably about half the length of a football field, maybe 50, 60, 70 yards. I would say its, it's thickness was probably maybe about 10 yards and its width was probably about 30 yards. So it's pretty big. Um, and again, it was slow moving, no exhaust, no propellers, no engines, nothing. Just moving about 10 feet over the tree line. I will take any lie detector test. I know what I saw. Um, I stand 100% by the story, both stories I saw. I know what I saw. I know what I didn't see. And I know what I saw on both times. I know the one thing was a, was a supernatural ghost orb, call it what you will. And the other thing was an un- was a UFO because it was an unidentified flying object. And it was, to me, a craft that had been created through reverse engineering. That's what I thought I saw. No, that's what I thought it was that I know I saw. Wow. Okay. That's a couple of amazing stories, especially the UFO one. Cause you know, my wife and I saw the giant flying triangle that had to be 300 feet on a side, completely silent. It was not yeah. that high off the ground, maybe a hundred feet, but it was so large. It looked like you could, you know, hit it with a, you know, a rock and, uh, well, and I'm like, Robert, give me any lie detector test. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, being an earth science and astronomy guy myself and into aviation since I was a small child, there was no way that this thing was supposed to be up in the air. And, and it was, it was that experience that started us down this road of starting a Facebook group, getting people to join just to see if they saw something else. And then we started getting all these stories rolling in about we didn't see that there, but we saw this over here and the, it just started to increase and we started to get more and more stories and comments and stuff until we finally decided, you know what, let's, let's start a podcast. Let's talk to some people and let's see who, what happens. And, you know, here we are today, you know, trying to learn and, and going down a rabbit hole of epic proportions. <laughs> so no, it, it, it's it's I know what I saw, and it, what your experience sounds somewhat like mine. It, my the, my the thing I saw was pitch black; it was totally black, but you could see it against the nighttime sky because it was solid yeah. black. You could still see it, and it had headlights. It had these two white lights coming out the front and two coming out the bottom, so you could see it outlined. I mean, you could see what you were looking at. And, it, and like you said, it's just a rectangle with no wings, no engine, no propellers, just hovering there. And I mean, I don't know what it was, but to me, it struck what I saw struck me as a government reversed craft made from UFO technology. That was the vibe that it was throwing out. Yeah. And see, the vibe I was getting was get the hell out of here. You know, you're not you're not supposed to be here kind of a night, you know, feeling and and I tried to make that happen. And then when I saw it rotating, because it yeah. didn't bank like it was using aerodynamics, it rotated on a on the y-axis 
you know, it just spun to then move and be parallel to us along the expressway. And I was like, no, we lost sight of it. And then when we come up out of the sound abatement area, it was gone. So now did it engage some kind of a cloaking device or whatever that allowed us not to see it? And it was still there. I don't know, but I couldn't see it. So therefore, to me, it was gone. <laughs> and that's all I needed to know. And, and we got back home. Now, some people say that seeing these things, you're, you're, you're kind of meant to see them. And then they set you, things will happen in your life that will set you on certain paths. And for us, it's been this path of inquiry as to what was that thing. And then, oh my God, look at all these people in here in Michigan that are seeing all of these things and having these things happen to them and seeing the same kind of craft that we saw. Can you uh, speak to, did did either one of your experience help uh, guide you on the path that you're on today, or at least open some certain doors that, that made where you're at today more possible? Yeah. I mean, the one thing that I took away from them was the, the reaction that I, the UFO one didn't really scare me. I mean, I, I kind of just, we drove off and it, it didn't follow us. I could see it over. I could still see it, but it didn't, I, I was never afraid. It was more curious. I mean, I was more intrigued by it. The ghost one unnerved me because I had no idea what this thing was. And I didn't know if this thing was hostile or friendly. So I just made a decision to run, to get away from this thing. Cause I didn't know what it was. Um, the one thing I took a- away from it for me, and again, it's subjective was this, fe- and, and, and it was this overwhelming feeling of immediately after it happened was it was just this thing that I just kept repeating in my head was it's all true. I mean, you know, the supernatural, the world of ghosts, it's true. You know, I just saw one. It's true. You know, the UFOs, there's life on other planets. It's true. You know, it was just this revelation for me that, um, you know, the world of the supernatural, the world of the occult, the world of UFOs, life, this is real. This isn't, you know, made up. This is, this is real. I mean, and that's really fascinating. I mean, you know, to me, this kind of hints at, okay, there must be consciousness after death. There's obviously life on other planets. This is obviously way bigger than me. There's more to that. There's more, there's more to mundane reality as a world. There is a supernatural super consciousness. This is true. That was what I took away from it. It's true. That's why I kept saying to myself, it's true. Ghosts are real. UFOs are real. I've seen it. So that's what I kind of took on it. And I guess for me, just to wrap up was, you know, when, when I guess for me, I I don't know if it put me on a path or anything, but when um, I analyze stuff, you know, it's, it's sort of the same reaction I get. Oh, it's true. You know, Stanley Kubrick is really using repetition in The Shining. Oh, it's true. The Masons really did put all this crazy architecture in the federal district with all these astral alignments and stuff like that. So for me, I'm much more open to believing it when I see it. I guess that if that makes sense, uh, you know, it, it's 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 more easier for me to see and comprehend and understand it, probably because of those events where if I didn't have them. I wouldn't say that I'd be less skeptical. I probably maybe wouldn't be able to see it as readily as I do see it now, if that makes sense. Yeah. Perfect sense. Yep. So have to ask, because we always ask this question, um, any ties to Michigan? No, not that I'm aware of. No, sorry. 
Uh, we tried. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll we'll make you a Michigander honorably. Then we'll just you know we'll send well, you I a bumper. That. We'll bumper. We'll send you a bumper sticker or something. It says you are now an an honorary member of where you can hold up your hand and go. I'm from here. <laughs> right. The only place in the world where you can hold up your hand and point and say, "I live here." All right. Uh, any. Uh, anything you can tell us about future projects coming up? You kind of hinted to a uh, occult symbolism for and sim- uh, uh, cinema. What? Anything else you got going on? Yeah, I'll just wrap up by saying, for starters, thank you for having me on your show. It was my pleasure to be here. Um, I just, if you don't mind, I'll get my website out if that's okay. Absolutely, because that was going to be my next thing to let my let our audience know about uh, your social media, websites, uh, products you got out there, books. Yeah, the the the, the current projects that I'm working. I'll, I'll wrap it up. I'll, I'll answer both questions. The current projects that I'm working on. I'm working on CS4 right now i'm outlining it i'm actually um doing some revisions and edits to my other four books cinema symbolism three is completely done but there's a few things um that i want to tweak in royal arch and the other two cinema books and the work of fiction that i have out that uh, i'm not happy with that i just need to tweak there's a couple mistakes in there um that i I gotta fix so i'm working on that right now that's my current project um that's probably going to take me a little while um but but I'm also outlining CS4, and I also have some other projects in mind. So um, what I'm right now working on is getting some um, these uh, revised editions out of uh, Royal Arts CS1, CS2, and, and my work of fiction. These won't be new editions. These will just supplant the ones that are currently out. Um, and again, it, it's not like I'm rewriting the book or there are just some fixes that I got to make. Um, you know, I, I would say if you've already read the book, you don't have to buy a new copy or anything like that. So that's what I'm currently working on right now. And again, if you're interested in what I was saying and you want to find me online, um, it's just go to my website. Um, I do not maintain any social media. So it's all my website. It's my name. Uh, my name is Robert W. Sullivan, the fourth. So my website is Robert W. Sullivan. And then for the fourth, it's the letter I, the letter V.com. Robert W. Sullivan, IV.com links to purchase the books. Uh, you can get them in the ebook or the print edition information about me, um, information about upcoming shows I'm going to be on or shows that I have been on will be there as well. Um, it's a very easy site to navigate www.robertwsullivaniv.com. And again, thank you, Wayne. Thank you for Michelle for having me on, on your show. It was my pleasure to be here, Robert. We just want to thank you and uh, wish you a good night. Okay. Have a good night guys. Thank you. Man, I don't know about you, but I feel like I've been through a level 500 college lecture with that interview. Yeah, they didn't offer classes like that, though, when I went to college. Oh, could you imagine how cool that would be if you did have classes like that to learn about all of this stuff and symbolism and all of that? And just the discussions alone. Oh, man. Well, and that's like during our during the interview, I found myself. Right when we got to the part about the the clowns and John Gacy. Joker, the Joker makeup yeah, that he was talking about. Absolutely. I instantly in my head went back to Todd McFarlane's clown from Spawn Violator. And sure enough, the the makeup, the sharp edges, um, there were some threads on Twitter that even said that part of the inspiration for that makeup and the character itself was John Gacy. Yeah. And what a perfect evil person to pick to represent 
an evil character in a film like the Joker or in Spawn. I mean, just very, very creepy. Well, and, and would have never thought that. I've seen Spawn, I mean, dozens of times and never even thought about it or made the connection until our discussion with Exactly. And see, that's how that works in the back of your head. When you first see it, you're thinking, wow, that's really creepy clown makeup. You don't really know why it's creepy, but you just kind of, you know, get unsettled by it. I'm unsettled by clowns altogether. I really think they're useless. I don't have any yeah, purpose I'm for indifferent clowns. Towards them. I'm not scared of them, you know, even after the, the clown craze of them popping up everywhere. Yeah, that you know. was a little silly. Yeah, that that was just more for media hype and, you know, even like the the clown hotel out in Nevada. Yes. So, and exactly. we we've seen it. Yeah, um, we were there. Yeah, we we've seen the hotel, we've seen the cemeteries right next to the hotel. Yep. So. Took a couple of pictures and then kept on driving. Yeah, and it was just like, okay, we got to get back to the airport in Vegas. <laughs> so, um yeah, But it's really strange. It's really strange how Seeing things like this in films that you don't consciously recognize, open up your mind and your consciousness to something else. And, you know, when I first saw Joker, I really enjoyed that film, but I always felt really bizarre looking at the makeup that the Joker was wearing. Well, and I guarantee that the next film that we watch, we're going to sit there and investigate and criticize everything, everything that we see in it. Oh, absolutely. I so, definitely want to get those uh, films, uh, The Hereditary and uh, Midsommar, uh, which are, I guess, Hereditary is like part one and Midsommar is part two. And check out those films. I can see and the a now two-hour film 14 hours later. <laughs> right, exactly. All right, before we end this show, there was something else I wanted to bring up, and that was that word occult. Somehow, someway, that word occult, I think, got captured by pop culture to mean just one thing, and it's like if somebody was in the occult, it was like a group of evil people. And really all that means is, is that they are doing something that's hidden or secretive. It might be good. It might be evil. It might be completely neutral. But when we say occult or they're in the occult, I think we're looking at the word cult and occult as the same thing. And I think that's where we kind of get mixed up in this word. I don't know, Michelle, you're a literacy expert. What's it's, your feelings on it? Whenever I hear the word occult, I always feel a very negative connotation with that word. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I have a feeling that there were probably video or movies and TV shows and stuff that when the evil magician or the witch shows up, they probably tag them with the word, you know, they're part of the occult. Well... You know, it just means to do something in secret or have secret knowledge. And so hopefully people can now distinguish a little bit between the word occult and cult and secretive and evil. You know, I really think we shouldn't just paint everything with that evil brush because they say occult. 
Well, in speaking of evil and one of the pieces of literature that came up in our discussion with Robert Sullivan is Lewis Carroll. Right. And before we get into this and end this show, again, I just want to give a big thank you to Mr. Robert W. Sullivan IV for coming on the show. Make sure you go to his website and check out his books. He's obviously very knowledgeable on the subject. He's written three books on symbolism in cinema alone, plus his works of fiction. So please, once again, go check him out. And that website is www.robertwsullivaniv4the4th.com. Now, going back to that word evil that you said with the occult, it's funny that tonight we talk about symbology. And a few of the terms of symbolism that are aware in present in one of the poems by Lewis Carroll that is connected to Alice in Wonderland, it is the Jabberwocky that was an introduction piece into Through the Looking Glass. And threat and danger and evil are three of the terms that often come up when it comes to symbolism in this poem. So we want to leave our listeners tonight with the poem Jabberwocky and you yourself can decide what symbolism truly is in this poem. Ooh, this is going to be good. I always love it when she does this. Twas brillig. And the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wave. All mimsy were the borough groves, and the mome rats outgrave. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird, and shun the frumious bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the mangsome foe he sought. So rested he by the tum-tum tree and stood a while in thought. And as in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes aflame came whiffling through the tulgy wood and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with its head he went galumphing back. And hast thou slain the jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy. O frabjous day, kalu kalay, he chortled in his joy. T'was brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wave. All mimsy were the boro groves, and the mome rats outgrave. Ladies and gentlemen, the final words for tonight. Keep your eyes to the sky. You have been listening to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. You can reach us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at mi underscore UFO and join our Facebook group by searching for Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters. So until next time.